Welcome to uh, well, episode seven now, isn't it, of Real Talk? Yeah, yeah. Um, episode seven of Real Talk. With me, Jake, and Jack. Um, we have a special guest on today. Uh, I've known him for about 12 years. Like, probably longer probably. than that. Yeah. Probably, yeah. Uh, a long time. Uh, he's <laughs> yeah. going to be basically holding my hand through uh, the film I've mentioned. I've been writing Salad Days, uh, which we'll discuss more about later in the episode. Um, it's quite healthy holding your hand. I mean, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. You're gonna. He um, he's got a lot more experience than me. So um, and we also watched Once Time in Hollywood together at the cinema, the first time. Um, and yeah. he's, he's called Travis. So introduce yourself. That's my name. Hi, my name's Travis, and uh, I've come here to talk about. Uh... Has he gone? Um, he is still saying he's connected. I don't know what's happened there. Right. He's gone. Um... <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, I'm right, right. Back. Back. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. 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 You're back. All right. Well, I was, I was about to say, I'm Travis, and I'm, I'm here to talk about Tarantino's second best film, in my opinion. <laughs> That's it, that's, that's it. I mean, to be fair, I do love it as well. Um, you, you, Jack's had a pretty Tarantino film week. Um, yeah, I have. I also I, I rewatched Pulp Fiction again at like six o'clock this morning as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we'll start off like we did last episode. We'll go into like general news this week. Um, I've got a few stuff I want to talk about. Um, the first one uh, is... Luca Guadagnino um, is going to be directing the remake of the remake of Scarface uh, with the Coen Brothers script. Um, he directed Call Me By Your Name a few years ago with Timothy Chalamet and was nominated for Best Picture, which, I mean, it's been long in the making, that whole remake of remake of Scarface. Um, I think originally you had David Yates, the director of like, a lot of the Harry Potter films, uh, involved at one point. Uh, what are your thoughts on a remake of Scarface, of the remake? Um, I mean, I'll, I'll start. A, a, a lot of classic films um, just shouldn't be touched. I think a lot of films, especially that, you know, are very critically acclaimed or, you know, are just classics, especially films like Scarface. Um, yeah, I, I don't think they should be touched. I don't think they should be um, remade. I think it'd be um, similar to, you know, somebody saying, let's remake The Godfather or let's remake a film like Blade Runner. You know, it just um, yeah. it just shouldn't be done. And um, that, that's, that's not to say, like, it, it could be remade and it could be good. It could be better than the um, first one, but it's almost like sometimes there's a time to take that risk with filmmaking. Sometimes there isn't. This is one of the times where you probably shouldn't. I think the weird thing about it is the Coen brothers are involved, like the Big Lebowski, obviously like Big Lebowski, um, Fargo, and it's like it's strange to see them like involved in such a high profile profile project, like a remake of Scarface. I would not, if someone says a remake of Scarface for me, it'd be like low level. Like they'll probably put some unknown director involved, but with the Coen brothers in 
writing the screenplay for it. It's just a weird one for me. Like, I'm not sure how I feel about it. Because it's rare that they put their name onto something that isn't great. Yeah, I mean, the, the Coen brothers, obviously, are probably two of the most prolific writers and directors of the past, you know, 10, 20 years. And some of the stuff they've done is obviously fantastic. You've got stuff like The Big Lebowski. And um, I think it's definitely interesting that they've decided to, well, that they've decided to um, attach their names to this. And, you know, obviously um, it's interesting because, you know, you wouldn't think that people like the Coen brothers would want to, you know, remake a classic that they probably would have taken inspiration from somewhere down yeah. the line. So I think it, it definitely is, um, it's definitely interesting. So um, I'm, intri- I'm intri- interested from like both of you here. So the first Scarface is very like, it's set in night. it's 1930s, it's probably like a pulp crime film. You've got the 80s Scarface, you know, a lot of the 80s staples and like, his culture is so obviously seen throughout the film. Pitch me an idea for the new Star Scarface film. What do you want it to be about? I don't want I'd it like to be about care home. You want it to be set in care home? Wouldn't that be amazing? No, I think I think if they remade it, I'd. I mean, I don't want them to, but if that if they had to, then. Set it back in the 80s, or no, no, don't set it in the 80s, set it in the 1930s, how the original one was, and That's sort of bite cool. it off the, the first one more than the second. Yeah, um, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd probably have to say something similar there. I'd, I'd say that if it was going to be remade, you know, you'd want it to sort of um, follow the original, or you'd want them not to do it, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't imagine a modern day Scarface, and I don't think it would work. It wouldn't work. No, modern day Scarface would not work. Yeah. It's part of like yeah, it's staple. Like anyone who's played like Grand Theft Auto Vice City, it's it's so yeah, yeah. part of its own time period that it's just it, yeah. it shouldn't ever be. It's one of those like it's like remaking Back to the Future in modern times. It just wouldn't work. Part of the charm is the ages. <laughs> no. Um, but moving on, um, Phil Lord and Chris Miller, who you may know from Twenty One and Twenty Two Jump Street, that they both wrote and directed both of them and the two Lego movies. Um. I've set to direct uh, a Ryan Gosling um, adaption of uh, a new book by Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian. And uh, I'm kind of looking yeah, forward to yeah. this, because 21 and 22 Jump Street were like a probably my favourite comedy the last 10 years. And Ryan Gosling in space, you know, after the, since the, uh, I think it was The First Man, was his last film, he was in space. So I'm kind of intrigued. Um, I mean, I... Um, Andy Weir, to my knowledge, only has two books, um, The Martian and Artemis, and I have read them, both of them, and I, th- I, th- I think they're both um, brilliant, brilliant books. And um, the, Ma- the Martian is, it's weird, it's not, it's not one of the best films ever made, but I think it's definitely one of my favourites. Um, I don't know why that is, I just try to really, really um, enjoy the film. And um, Artemis is a brilliant book, and I I've heard lots of um, things about, obviously, it was announced to be made just after the book was um, released, obviously. Um, I can't remember who it was picked up by. But, um, yeah, I'd definitely, definitely be um, interested to see what they do with that film because I'm pretty sure they've, yeah, they've been confirmed attached to um, attached to the adaptation of that. I think it's... Did anyone see that thing, like, a few years ago? They were going to, like, do a crossover between Men in Black and 
like the Jump Street series. Yeah, yeah. Like it sounds awful, but I would have probably watched that. I heard there's gonna be yeah, between Marvel and Star Wars, and I, I just could not imagine that like even working because. I mean, I don't. I don't think certain crossovers are just meant to cross over. Uh, I, I think. I think having having two crossovers that work is kind of a very rare thing. It was just yeah. Remember the Scooby Doo WrestleMania thing? If you don't see it, watch it on Netflix. It's the worst thing ever. You got like John Cena, like Arco, and like no, it was oh no, it was Randy Orton when he like Arco, the Arco was like Shaggy or something. It was the weirdest thing I've seen. <laughs> Um, also a bit of sad news this week, uh, Lynn Shelton, a film and TV director who directed uh, Hump Day, a, a romantic comedy a few years ago that was really cool, and she's directed a few episodes of Mad Men, died at age 54 this week, which is quite sad. Unlinked to uh, COVID-19. Any more news? Um, not really. Um, there was one thing that we haven't talked about on the show yet that I thought would be... Um interesting to uh just talk about i was going to save it for the um star wars episode in a couple of episodes time but we'll undoubtedly talk about it anyway um tamara john tamara morrison sorry has um obviously been officially cast as boba fett for the mandalorian yeah and um this is something that not that i don't agree with i mean i love boba fett as a character I think he's one of those cool yeah. characters um, and he's definitely one of the cooler characters in the Star Wars universe. I, I don't agree with the um, the announcement of no. um, Tamara Morrison playing him. Obviously, they've made it this huge deal and um, I feel that it it's really going to sort of take away from the sort of shock factor. It's definitely going to take away yeah. what they wanted to get from it, I think, which is um, a really good fan moment. I think it would have been better if they hadn't have said anything and just sort of left it to happen and yeah. then get their reactions. Obviously, people already, if you follow the Star Wars canon stuff, you know that Boba Fett uh, didn't die in the Sarlacc pit, but I think it yeah. definitely would have been interesting to um, just sort of let it be, not announce anything, not overly hype it up, because, you know, it could be crap yet, but... <laughs> Not not hype it up and just sort of saw what happened. Um, I think the thing with that, like now, is um, especially like the age we live in, is that there's so many leaks, and I think keeping it for a surprise would have been great, but it's very unlikely it wouldn't have been leaked. Well, well, even even if it wasn't leaked, um, someone who watched it first would have spoiled it straight away, and the majority of people yeah. who watched it would have known about it anyway, but. Yeah, I still agree. the 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 reason they announced it is probably just a, a selling point. It's to it's to advertise the show and, and get more people to watch it because they're like, oh look, Boba Fett's in it now. Whereas I agree, yeah. it was probably better if you watched it for the first time and then just saw Boba, uh, Boba Fett appear and you'd be like, well, and uh, you, you're probably right with that. But at the same time, there's two sides to the, to the argument because it would definitely be spoiled for probably the majority of people that watch it. Yeah. I'd probably I'd agree with that. Yeah, definitely. Um, shall we move on to our hidden gem section this week, where we discuss a film um, or TV show that yeah um, that it's we've, we've we've discovered over the last few weeks that no one has really ever seen. 
Um, should we start with Travis? Have you got anything you've been streaming recently that's really good that no one seems well, to be? Not, not, not recently. Bloody well, have a hidden gem, and that's uh, by uh, Steven Spielberg. One of, I'm not sure. I think it might have been his first feature film. I'm not sure. I'm not. I mean, I might be wrong yeah, on yeah. that. But he was 1971. And I don't know, I just love the cinematography and I love it's kind of just like a simple film, but it was simple but effective. And I, and I think if there's a hidden gem, that's probably uh, my top hidden gem. So, yeah. It's a public domain film, I want to say as well. So, like, you can watch it for free on YouTube or yeah. anywhere on the internet. See, I never knew that. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I, I'm just looking at like a few, a few of it now, like, it's, I know it is in the public domain. It's a really good as well. Like I think um, I can't remember who plays who, who's the main guy in the film now. Um, and it's what's, um, I want to say it's Dennis Weaver. I think Dennis Weaver's so good in the film as well. Yeah, he's, he's a very good actor. He's I, I don't know. It's just a, a seriously underrated Spielberg movie because I've never I've never really enjoyed Spielberg that much. Well, um, yeah. I would say, if if anything, that's probably my favourite Spielberg movie too, and it's very very underrated. So, yeah, Jack, what about you this week? Um, I mean, I haven't got any hidden gems as um such. I did have one picked out that I completely forgot to um watch, which is a short film by David Lynch by David Lynch called What Did Jack Do? Um, yeah. where David Lynch interrogates a monkey who is uh, suspected of murder. It's only 17 minutes long, but I completely forgot to watch it. Um, a film that I have watched this week, though, that I, I wouldn't call a hidden gem. I'd say it's definitely um, under, underrated. Is um, Wanted with James McAvoy and Angelina Jolie. Yeah, I've, um, I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah. I really like Wanted. I think it's um, really cool. I think it's shot quite nicely as well. And, um, yeah, I definitely don't think people talk about it enough. Oh, yeah, Is that the yeah, one where Chris Pratt? Yeah, carry on. Yeah, yeah, Chris, yeah. Chris Pratt's also in it. Yeah, is that the film where he has panic attacks at the start? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember what like an assassin. Yeah, he's like mashing the face with a keyboard, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, remember, I remember thinking that they like portrayed that uh, that sequence very well when he was having a panic attack. Like it kind of made you feel stressed and sort yeah, of getting insight into how exactly he was feeling. And I thought that was well made, you. Yeah, I definitely don't think people talk about it enough. I um, yeah, I think it's quite good. Yeah. Um, like this week, I watched this 2015 horror film called Circle that was on Netflix. I've seen. Um, it basically it's got a similar like there's this '98 film that came out. It's called Cube. <laughs> I want like I don't know what it is with the, like the shape names. Um, <laughs> but it's it's basically like Fifty Strangers just a, like wake up in this um circle and um they're stood in this like like little like um place where they're meant to stand around this massive machine that's a gun kind of and every two minutes um these strangers can vote about who they should kill next so it's really fast paced and um it's got like a load of like social commentary that's really hammed in there about like class sex race it's it's really like I don't think that's the best part of it. Um, it's super fast paced though, because every two minutes someone's dying, and you slowly start to learn more about why they're 
in the circle, what's the point of it all? Um, it's also got, I really like the concept of just every two minutes someone dies. It's a really like basic idea, and I kind of like the low, like the very low budget feel of the film. Um, it has got its problems. Um, actors are really, really inconsistent um, in their performances. It's very low budget, so you kind of have to expect it. Um, but it's it's not it's not great. Um, the ending isn't even that good either. Um, but the whole like premise of the film, and it's only like eighty minutes long. It's so well worth it because it's just. The pacing of it and the story, it's 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 some good fun. That's how to describe it. I would recommend watching Cube instead though. It's like ninety eight yeah. film. But Circle Circles I had a good time with. Right, so um shall we get into the uh, main topic of today? Once upon a time in Hollywood. Shall we? Yeah. Um so, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll try and summarise the plot up. Uh, there'll be spoilers from now on, by the way. So if you haven't watched <laughs> Once Time in Hollywood, I would highly recommend it. Um, I'll try to summarise the plot using like loads of different places. Um, the best I could come up with was like a fading television star and his stunt double um, trying strife success in the film, in, in, in film industry. Um, as, alongside Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski, who are trying to solidify themselves as the greats of this new Hollywood era that's emerging. Uh, and it's set around 1969, around the Manson family. That's the best I could come up with. It's, it's, it's about everything and nothing at the same time. Yeah, I agree so, with that. Yeah. Um, I rewatched it, like, two days ago. And for me, I love the structure of, like, it's so well structured for me. Like It's like hidden exposition that I really like. And a hidden plot, which I really like. Yeah, it is a, it but, um, a hidden plot. Yeah. Yeah. So, what I like, what I want, I want to hear what you two thoughts of the film are first. So we'll start uh, with Jack. Yeah, start with Jack. Yeah. So, um, I I only watched this film very recently, and I've still only um seen it twice. But I think I've definitely got to agree with what Jake said about the structure. It's um. When when the film starts, what what I like about this film is, like like a lot of Tarantino's films, the it's very non-linear. It's not very straightforward, and it doesn't there doesn't seem to be an end in sight. And I like the way that this is done. It's very open ended, and it's just very. It's almost like a character profile. It's just very... It's a film about people, and it's a film about their daily life, and it's just them wanting to, you know... It's um, Rick Dalton just sort of wanting to break out of this sort of rut that he's got himself into, where, yeah. you know, he's he's playing these villains on pilots and stuff, and he just wants to return to what he used to be. He wants to... Yeah. You know, solidify his name in Hollywood. He wants to make sure that he doesn't fade out of the out of show business. Yeah. And in in terms of it being a Tarantino film, I I really like that it's. I'd, I'd say it's definitely a lot more mature than it than his um earlier titles, and I I really do like this film. I agree with that. Travis. Well, I I think I I have to agree with that. I think it's um. 
I, I don't know. It, like you said, it's very non-linear and it shows lots of different, um, I wouldn't say stories, but just like views and, and just people's everyday lives. And it's kind of just like an insight to the 60s, uh, sort of exaggerated influence because obviously it didn't follow a normal person. It follows movie stars, uh, stuntmen. And uh, I don't know, like sometimes I think maybe it's a touch too, uh, like unlinear, unlinear, sorry. And but yeah. I, I don't know. I still think the end wraps up very well and kind of brings everything to an end, while it, it doesn't lead up to the end. If that makes sense. The the only the only thing I would say was the the Manson family, although they they, they do pose a threat nearer the end. I think it would have been good to to see more of a threat during the middle of the film. So you sort of anticipate yeah. in the end scene a lot more. If you understand what I mean. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, I but then in a sense, I do like that the film it it never sets up a real protagonist. I think I mean Charles Manson himself is only in like what one scene. Yeah, and obviously you've got um the scene on the ranch where it's sort of you know you've got that sinister sort of tone where it starts to suggest that you know these guys are the real threat of the story but i, I like, like how it, does, it doesn't that whole yeah scene, yeah it's yeah, it's really the whole silence of it and the, like the when the when he approaches um the house and, and, um, and the place is really changes yeah yeah um, that's one of my favorite scenes and, in the film yeah and and that that sort of change in tone is where it starts to starts uh, starts to suggest that you know there is there is that antagonist there. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want. I want to like, because obviously you said the film is very non-linear, but I think it it gives the illusion like it's illusion that's non-linear because uh, watching it again, there's so many like great storytelling techniques. Um, like I think Christopher Nolan does his his hidden ex- exposition really well, and I think Tarantino did a lot of what. No one uses so well in this film. So an example is the flamethrower scene at the start. You know, and you've got the fourteen fist and the clutter. You see how this flamethrower, um, like, comes into play later on in the film with the ending scene. Um, another example is um, Brad Pitt uh, food and his dog. Um, I always like to see that as a good example because you can see at the start of the film where you know he. He, his dog only comes to his to go and eat his food when he hears a click. Um, he clicks his like mouth. Um, and I think the hidden exposition is really really cool in this film, which I didn't notice for the first time round. Um, another thing I really want to talk is about that scene with Leonardo DiCaprio and that young actress uh, when he's on set. I think she's called Julia Butters. And um, yeah, he's reading, yeah. reading the novel. I love that scene so well because you learn so much from. Um, Rick Dalton's character from that scene alone. Yeah, I mean that that scene is um as well as the scene in the uh, in the trailer as well where he sort of flips out. Yeah. Um, th- those two scenes is where you know he really starts to reveal that he, even just by him sort of like reading out the plot of the book, it's sort of reflecting his life where you know this Sky was a big shot and now he's just sort of fading away. Yeah, but you know he he's not he he's not ready to fade yet, and he he's not he's not ready to uh sort of give that up yet. 
and I do really like the uh, way that is done. The f- my favourite line in the film is also, uh, uh, you know, when like she comes over to like comfort and he starts crying, and uh, he says, "Oh, in about fifteen years, you're going to be living it." I love that. Si- I love that line. It's so funny. That uh, yeah, that's really good. I think I think Tarantino's always been the king of of dialogue. I mean, uh, that's a bold opinion, but uh, I, I don't know. It's just something about the way that he, he makes his characters speak, and they always seem to say exciting. Things that never quite lose the interest. Um, yeah, co- coming back to uh, Tarantino and dialogue, from watching um, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction again over the weekend, and think thinking about you know the the dialogue and uh, Tarantino's acting, I think when when Tarantino does act in um in those two films in particular, and you know when he interacts with his own dialogue, I really really like that because it sort of sets the example of sort it that his that is his vision you know that's how he wants it and he's yeah he's performing those lines how he wants them to be shown on screen and you've got the um the thing in reservoir dogs where they're talking about the madonna song like a virgin and that conversation is really cool and um i like his dialogue with winston wolf in um in pulp fiction as well i think and i just think um to like once at a time like the dialogue in Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction although it's great I think in like once at a time in Hollywood it's his most mature because you still got that Tarantino dialogue um but at times it feels really but um an example of this I always see this um when you you watch um Cliff Booth and Rick Dalton watch the episode of FBI together on the telly on the TV it's so like yeah yeah you can see their friendship like glow in that scene and it's Tarantino's dialogue I really like about the scene is that it's not your typical Tarantino dialogue it's it's still got his essence there and the way he, the way you know the, the long stretches of dialogue from one certain character but I think it really it how to put it it's it's not it's not self it's not as self-indulgent as I'd say something like Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction yeah, I mean the the thing I think the main hook with um Tarantino's dialogue in general is that it's generally about nothing, but it's about everything. You know, yeah. it's like th- this dialogue is most of the time like it's not necessarily important to the story or the progression of the story, but it's just so riveting and it and it feels natural to the characters that he's written them for. Yeah. And I do think um, that's that's definitely important with um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because it is like these characters are sort of mature and on screen. You know, obviously you've got Rick Dalton who he goes over to um, shoot the Italian films and it is yeah. sort of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It is about these these characters trying to mature and trying to grow into the show business. Yeah. Um, I think one of my favourite, my only real issue... Um, in the film also has my favourite line in it and like Tarantino loves like to use narration in his films um, but I think it's also it, it, it's, it comes across as quite lazy sometimes um, one of my main issues with this is you know not on the plane back from Italy and it's like Kurt Russell's narration overwards for me it, yeah, yeah. it feels like he, he's he, he needs to slap on the ending somewhere and 
it, it's yeah. like a little force and a little, little lady sometimes the way he has to use narration. It also does my favourite line, the whole um, uh, when you come to the end of the line with a buddy uh, that's more than a brother and less, a little less than a wife, like that line is brilliant. Um, yeah, that line is, um, that's really good. But I think it, he used it to set up, it's a very lazy technique for me, but he used it to set up the end of the film. And that's really my only issue with, I'd say the whole film in general, to be fair, because I don't think any other director, if it was any other director, not Tarantino doing this film, um, it's one of those things where no matter who they are, if they, if they went to like a producer or any like studio with this, they'd be asked to trim good 45, 50 minutes off the film. And Tarantino is now the only director yeah. who could probably get away with that now. Jay. Did, did you tell me that um, there was a, a an extended cut coming to Netflix or something? Yeah, um, I saw this. I, I saw this article somewhere. It was a, there was a four hour cut coming to Netflix, which I'm down for. Well, same. Yeah, yeah. I agree with you. Uh, you there because I think that is the the one scene that needs to be extended and sort of drawn out, so you can you can sort of see more what he did in Italy and the to progress it more from the the not the not the main storyline but the main story to to the end and just kind of make it make it a little bit more sense and less seamless lines in yeah um, I mean one one thing that I'll oh, carry on I know oh, carry on carry on I mean what one thing that sort of um, put me off seeing the film in the first place was that a lot that a lot of people said that. Um, it was a bit too boring and a bit too slow to be a Tarantino film. And, you know, yeah. it didn't have that trademark um, Tarantino violence the whole way through. And um, I, I just sort of find it funny how, you know, in, in at the beginning of his career, Tarantino was sort of criticized for, you know, the violence, especially upon the, with the release of Reservoir Dogs and it being banned in um, several places, including here in the UK, and I just like how um, he, he sort of adapted to that, and now he's, you know, excessive violence in films, that is sort of Tarantino's um, sort of trademark now. Yeah. I see, I mean, it didn't have as much, but I think this film definitely makes up for it in its last, like, 20 minutes. In the last, like, 20 minutes, yeah. That's got, the payoff in this I film think... is probably the best payoff I've seen in recent years, like, it's so good. Yeah, I think Tarantino puts it best himself when he says you can't go into a Tarantino film and don't expect gore. It's like going to a Metallica concert and telling them to turn the music down. It's just what you yeah. what you expect <laughs> and what what is gonna come out of it. Yeah, but I think but, that's sort of a whole issue. Yeah, that people like to like again. It shouldn't. It, for me, it shouldn't be an issue, like how much violence is in the film, as long as it's a, a good film. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it, yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it doesn't really matter so much um, with the content. I mean, obviously, it depends who's watching it. I mean, if you're showing a Tarantino film to a, four-year-old you know and they start to pick stuff off i think that's where you sort of draw the line but if you were showing a tarantino film to a mature 12 or 13 year old you know i think it depends on the maturity of who's watching the film i mean 
I think that, that he always gets a lot of controversy any films around in it. Any, I mean, an example of this one, um, is the Bruce Lee scene in this film. Like, should it have been there? Should it have not? Is see, that, see, personally, I, I think the um. See, personally, I th- I think the uh, Bruce Lee f- uh, scene was great. I thought I thought it was quite funny, but yeah. um, obviously, lots of people lots of people didn't like it, including members of his family. I think stepped forward and said that yeah. they didn't like it, and Tar- Tarantino just sort sort of told him to get on with it, you know, because he wasn't removing it. Well, it's like but, um, it, it, it wasn't yeah. kind of a dream like scene. Uh, I I think you, you no, know. Yeah. The, 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 the fight didn't even end. He could have still won. And I don't know what they expected. Like, oh, because he's dead, uh, we're going to have to make him win. It, 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 it's, it's kind of... It's not even like a, a realistic uh, interpretation of Bruce Lee. And uh, I think it didn't uh, mean to be one. So I don't know why people should get so pissed off about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the depictions of... Um, Bruce Lee, and you know, even even with um other other characters, it, they weren't meant to be realistic. Again, it's sort of like alternative history, like Inglorious Bastards. You know, it's it's not meant to be realistic and accurate. The thing with it, which I found, it's just it's just meant to be fun. Is that um the whole scene though is in someone's head. It's in like Brad Pitt's, like Chris Pooh's head. It's meant to show like how he like he's he's got a massive ego. That was a point of the scene. So I like it's not it's not like it even happened in the film. It was just in this character's head. And for me, it's just it's it was used as a metaphor, not something that's attacking Bruce Lee's legacy. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. Uh, I don't think uh, Bruce Lee's legacy is too famous. For something like that to destroy his legacy, and uh, you know, I don't think it was even even that bad anyway. Because like I said, he could have still won the fight. Because they they was doing best of three, wasn't they? And they both won round. So yeah. Um, one of my favourite scenes in this film. Uh, moving on, uh, is the scene where he's shooting Lance as a pilot, and. Uh, it shoots. It, it show. It like it shows uh, in the film them shooting it in real time, and it's so good. Um, I mean, I, it's seen like when they like they cut the film and um, they have to like re- re- restart the scene and everything with uh, Leo's character. I really, really like that scene because yeah. it shows the, the attention to detail that Tarantino put into this film. And you can certainly see the downfall of Leo's character, Leo, uh, Rick Dalton in the scene. Um, you can see how it, like, he messes with that one line, it slowly just ruins him. Yeah, yeah, I, I do like how, um, you, but one thing that I did sort of pick up on, I don't know if this is just, um, this is just me when I was watching this, but, um, when they first started shooting the scene, I think um, if you were if you were what if you were watching that as if it was a TV show, you'd say um, Dalton's performance was quite good. Yeah. And then I think as you, as you saw when they had to you know reshoot and stuff, I think you saw obviously you saw Dalton's confidence not. Yeah. And you see that his performance then deteriorates as well. Yeah. And he doesn't perform as good. And I really, really, I really, really like the way that was that was handled. 
Yeah. Um, this film's this film's cast and crew is ridiculous. I mean, look at I mean, you got Margot Robbie, Brad Pitt, Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, could anyone else? I mean, Al Pacino as well. Could any could any other director um ever ever do that? I'd say yeah, realistically, but very few. Like, uh, but but maybe yes, but I mean, it, it might take a lot more. Um, uh, persuasion, uh, like Martin Scorsese and Christopher Nolan are the only two that pops in my head that could probably uh, get get a yeah. as good as this film. Well, not not many directors, definitely. Um, no, I I definitely agree with that. Yeah. Um, watching this film as well, it's the way it's shot. I mean, he he shot it on film like thirty five millimeter, um, and. It, it's it's it feels like you're watching a film from in the sixties, like that's like fifty years old. Um, I also get a sense of like sadness when watching the film because this film will never ever be this type of film will never ever be made again. And you can kind of feel like it's come to the it feels like the end of an era in our own era with, as well with the whole switch to digital filmmaking. Um, we've got. Um, big like companies like Marvel, superhero films dominating now largely in the box office. It kind of feels that there's a very few directors now. I mean, Tarantino being one of them, probably say Chris Nolan um, and Edgar Wright, the last like real few directors that are making original films that will get massive budgets and be able to do well in the box, perform well in the box office. Yeah, no, I agree with that one. Yeah, I mean, um, going back to what you said about the, um, obviously, the use of more people filming on digital, I mean, I think that that's, um, like, I don't hate, obviously, digital filmmaking, but I think it's really important that you're able to, you know, tell the difference. Yeah. Because, you know, when people are shooting on film, things like 35mm, um, it, does, it does generally look a lot nicer, I think. Directors, especially now, will opt to fil- film on um, digital because obviously it's a lot easier, a lot quicker. Um, arguably, you can you can do more stuff to it as well. But um, I, I do think you, you can tell when somebody's shot on thirty-five mil, and I think it definitely looks a lot like a lot nicer. Um, I think the thing with that is that between digital, like digital is great because it offers a lot of like younger and like independent filmmakers. A lot more opportunity to make a film, um, so I, I do think it has its benefits because it does bring costs down like a lot. But I think when it gets to the point and you've got you've got there, you 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 can optionally choose to shoot on film. I think you should. It's just respect to like the history of the whole medium itself. Um, yeah. Quite, yeah, definitely. Shooting completely on digital uh, kind of feels it's no longer. It, it, it's no longer. It feels like it's no longer part of its own medium, and it kind of loses its identity a bit. Personally, um, you can kind of see that with Tarantino, though. Um, I think going back to his like previous films, like Death Proof and the Grindhouse films, the way that they just weren't didn't do great in the box office. I think it shows it's he he's well aware that the cinematic landscape is changing around him, the whole industry is changing around him, and 
it, it's weird to think that you know, 20 years ago, he was considered quote unquote modern filmmaker. And with the introduction, with the introduction of digital, um, it's it's one of those things where you kind of you can kind of know you feel that Tarantino knows he's going to probably be the last filmmaker like him ever again. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. There, there aren't, you know, many people that are even close to the standard of Tarantino, you know, in terms of direction and filmmaking. I'd, I'd say there's only a handful that I'd consider, you know, that are still working and doing a lot of stuff now. I'd say there's only a handful that I would consider to be up there with him. Yeah. Um. Talking about the end of the film again, um, I mentioned that I don't really like Kurt Russell's uh, narration, but I think that whole scene where Out of Time starts playing by the Rolling Stones, it's August the 9th, um, the infamous day, of course, where Sharon Tate was murdered. Um, going into that scene where you can see the yeah. whole of like Los Angeles light up and all like infamous like, restaurants, cinemas, uh, all start to light up at the night, uh, that whole scene just gives me chills. Alone, and it yeah, that scene is um brilliant. I'd say it's up there with like Tarantino's best, and you can tell he he had such. I want to say it's a tragic story, but I do I wouldn't want anyone else to tell the story other than Tarantino. He deserves it. I mean, he's a film romantic yeah. all along, and that whole scene, that whole where it just lights up, it feels like Tarantino. You know he you know he loved that scene. Yeah, I mean, before I even um, watched the uh, film a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, you did tell me to uh, look out for that scene. Yeah. And it is, um, you know, that that scene in itself, let alone the rest of the film, it's a, it's a love letter to, you know, the 60s and the sort of early days of Hollywood. And it is, it is a really beautiful scene. It's very, very, very well shot on it. Um, yeah, obviously, out of time with the Rolling Stones, it is just um, that scene is one of the best in the film, I'd say. I mean, it even feels like, like obviously, you have the end of it, it kind of marked the whole Manson like, murder, it kind of marked the end of the Golden Age Hollywood. And I think that scene just summarizes it up perfectly. And I, it's, I'd say it's my favorite, if not my favorite scene in the film, apart from the ending scene, which we're going to move on to now, because that whole ending scene. I mean, Brad Pitt in that whole scene with his, uh, when he's tripping on acid, that whole scene is brilliant. Yeah. 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 Um, I think, I think personally, that is the most Tarantino scene that has ever been made. And yeah. I think it's, uh, in my opinion, Tarantino's best action scene. I'd say even better than Kill Bill. Not, I'd say, I, I know Kill Bill's got some very, very good action scenes and they're meant to be slapstick. And uh, but I think this is like a, a mix of realism and a mix of slapstick, and it just works, and it just feels like so brutal and so. I don't know. Like, I just really enjoyed it, and I thought that was probably one of the best uh, action scenes I've seen in cinema ever, aside from like you know John Wick movies and, and things like that. Yeah. It's... Yeah, I, I think the. Um... The the action at the end of uh, at the end of this film is um it's very 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 well done you know especially um obviously with uh with uh, Brad Pitt it's very raw you know he's 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 tripping on acid and he 
um, and he just sort of he just sort of goes berserk, and it's um, the the one part that I really like that I uh, think is um, shot and made very well is where he's um, using the bookcase. Yeah, and he sort of sm- smashes the head off the bookcase. I think that's um, very it look it looks great, and I think it's really well done. Yeah, I like- but it, it's still got a hint of slapstick in yeah. it, which works. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think the um the what the what. Carry on, um, I was gonna say like the I think the whole scene as well like when they all walk in and he started to trip and the whole conversation the screen the whole writing behind that whole scene before it where like the two walk the one goes in from the back you've got the what um is it is, is it Tex who comes in from the front um or yeah, the guy, yeah, yeah. and um that whole scene where they're just talking about it's just just talking it's brilliant after um thinking after rewatching uh Pulp Fiction this morning, the what the one scene that the um that where he's tripping, it does remind me of is when um Vince is uh gone he goes into Mia's house and she's talking to him over the intercom, yeah. and he's sort of not where he's not knowing where to go. That um those scenes uh struck quite similar to me for me. Oh well, yeah, I never I never made that comparison. Yeah. I can see what you mean. Yeah, yeah, that that sort of um, I I sort of noticed that this morning, and I was like, that's quite cool. Yeah, that's I didn't even notice that. I'm gonna ask you a fun question now, um, which is it's good. We'll, we'll get back to the end of the film in a second, the end shot. But what where is uh, Tarantino's cameo in this film? Oh, I actually, um, I actually do know this. I actually, I actually read this. Isn't he? Um, he voiceovers some commercials, doesn't he? And he does. Yeah. Um, does he do the stuff for Bounty Law as well? Nope, he doesn't do the stuff about Bounty Law. He does the ending commercial oh, okay. for um, the, the cigarettes. Uh, yeah, what, yeah. The first credit scene. Yeah. Which I didn't yeah. know till today. Yeah. Fair. I, I found it out. Yeah, um, I, I read that. Um, I think I want to talk about the last like scene. Um, with the whole where he goes to Sharon Tate's house, and that whole last final shot—it's so perfect. And you can see that just was in the making for years. I mean, you mentioned in interviews he—that was the first idea he had for the film. The whole last shot is when you go and see Sharon Tate. Yeah. Um, but that whole like—it just feels so—it's so perfect. And so I was worried when they were making this film because one of my least favourite genres in Hollywood is like Manson family murders because they aren't they never usually good films. Um but that whole last There was one with um Um carry on. Sorry, there was one with Matt Smith and playing um Charles Manson. I just thought I'd mention that. I heard it wasn't great. <laughs> Oh, uh, I forgot he even existed. <laughs> I forgot he even existed. Um, but that whole like last shot, it pays so much respect to Sharon Tate and her legacy. It doesn't tread on it. It, it, it. it perfectly treads on that fine line of just paying respects. I think. I think it 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 feels like the ending to a book that shifted, if that makes sense, just because it kind of wraps everything up yeah. and. The, the view from above, and and when when the title, well when it says the end as well, and I think that's perfectly fitting yeah. for a film that's called Once Upon a Time in in Hollywood, and I, I don't know, I, yeah, it, it kind of makes everything feel like a, a dream as well because you look in the it, and it, 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 you know, th- this is his dream, and 
after all the shit that he's gone through, you know, it's finally ended and it's, it's finally got what he wanted. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you've got... Obviously, it's called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and obviously the ending just got... um. It is sort of like a uh, like a fairy tale ending, you know. It is a fairy tale yeah. that Hollywood is uh, in general, um, and I think it, it's it, it's it's such a good ending. I mean, it's a shame it didn't happen in real life, obviously. I could have you know you'd left with Sharon Tate for a, a lot longer, um, but it's just one of those scenes where it feels so whole and complete, and it for me it. it Obviously, he's got one more film, but it feels like a bookend to his whole... It would be perfect. It would be so... Just a great ending for Tarantino. Like, that as a bookend to your career, that whole last shot would be perfect. And it did kind of feel that yeah. way. Although he's got one more no. film, obviously, he said. That would be... um. That would be really good, though. I'd be... Um, I'd, I'll, I'll, in, in a way, I can't, obviously, I never want to stop seeing Tarantino movies. But then obviously but if if that if you know if that was his final ever shot in cinema, like I I don't think I'd be disappointed. No, no. I mean he said he's only gonna make ten films anyway. Um even though Kill Bill One and Two technically are two separate films, but they're kinda not at the same time. Yeah. Uh, He's he's only gonna make one more film, uh which is interesting. But for me, I think this would have been better his his last film. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, like, like I said, if that, if that was, you know, the last ever Quentin Tarantino shot, I mean, I don't think you could be disappointed, especially with the film as well. I mean, I know a lot of people didn't like it, um, but personally, I, I think it was, um, it was really good. You know, it was an, it was an homage to the cinema that you know Tarantino would have watched when he was younger, probably, yeah. and you know, just. Just a love letter to the early, the early days of Hollywood. It's a, pers- it's a personal, it's a personal, it's a, it's more of a personal project to, to him. I think it's, it's not made for an audience. Although, yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's made for him. I think in that way, like, it's his soul. You can see how if you watch all the behind the scenes stuff on and the extras on like the Blu-ray, it's a film that he really, really needed to make. And you can see watching him in interviews. Um, he, he, I think he loves the whole. Um, obviously, you know he he was born in the sixties. You know he was raised. He grew up as a young as a young boy. You can see his just love for that whole era and the end of the golden age, which obviously the, the modern era of Hollywood, which he loved dearly. But I think it's just a great bookend to. To him himself. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, yeah, it, it definitely would have been um, nice for him to end his career there, with um, with obviously this being the film that he sort of, you know, that that was sort of his personal his personal film, the film that was going to sort of, you know, make him happy. He made it for him. He didn't make it for anybody else but um obviously like i said you, you never want to stop seeing tarantino films you no. know you never you 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 won't you won't want to i think like but what I think, it shows is 
it's one of my favorite scenes. What what my favorite scene with Margot Robbie in the, is when she's in the cinema watching her film, um, The Wrecking Crew. Um, yeah, yeah. Just watching her go about her day is really, really just. It shows. Um, it's just seeing her alive and as a person, and just walking around doing her normal stuff is great. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I I do I do like that. What what one one thing that that that's that scene in particular, especially in the cinema, it does show is that um, you know, a- actors and people in films they are just they're people audience. too. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're not. They want they want they want to be entertained yeah. as much as we want to watch their films. They as. Uh, yeah, and it and it just shows that you know they they're people and they they and it and um especially when um her characters on the screen you know and everybody's laughing and stuff it and she's and she's smiling and she's happy about that is that she really does love her work and she loves entertaining people she loves making other people yeah. happy and I think that's that's um that's really good. Right, um, we'll finish this uh once on Hollywood like review quickly um. But I want both of you to give me like a reason of why someone should go and watch this right now. So we'll start with you, Travis. The reason. Yeah. Uh, well, I'd say if you if you like retro things and if you like like the old sixties vibe, and well, even if you're just into Tarantino films, or there's a lot of things I think you can be into to like this film. It's a kind of it's an all round film that I feel like you would either love or or hate. So I think yeah. If you're into the 60s, if you're into the fashion, the music, the, the whole world, then it's definitely a film for you, and I would recommend it. Right, and Jack? Um, yeah, I mean, I'd say it, it's a film kind of to an extent, um, if you want to learn a bit more about, yeah. you know, the um, like the golden age of Hollywood, if you want to... I know this isn't completely accurate, but e- even if you just like... Um, if you want an example of brilliant like set design and, and um, brilliant production, and um, again, if you're a Tarantino fan, I think it's it's definitely a um, brilliant film. Despite what a lot of people say, I think it's um, it's a brilliant example of what Tarantino can do and what um, what he's really capable of. And I definitely think it's um, better and more mature than some of his earlier works. Yeah. I'd agree with you. Um, I'm going to move on to the last two sections. Uh, one section I wanted to talk about today was we've got Travis on. Um, I'm in the process of, I've almost finished within the next few weeks, um, the screenplay of, well, hopefully my first feature film, Salad Days. Um, Travis is going to be helping a lot on it. And I just want to like briefly talk about it and about the experience of like writing it um, and issues we're going to get towards with production and because it's one of those things that is quite scary the first time you're ever going to potentially shoot a feature film because you need to make sure that script is as solid as possible and I've had like issues with characters when writing the screenplay um, like um, I write something I want a certain character to do a certain thing that thing will then change later on down the line in the screenplay and um, I think the most Travis has got the most experience of um, on the film set 
And I'm intrigued to see any problems he's had shooting any short films for college of his own fun. So, um, yeah. Uh, well, I think there's, there's, there's constant problems. There's, there's always... There's always something that that doesn't quite work well, whether it's I don't know, like an actor or or a set or, or anything, or, or even an effect that you can't quite do. Uh, but I think the, the the best thing in filmmaking is is finding ways around it and finding ways to still portray your idea, uh, while while keeping it you know as good as you can possibly get it. And I think the the problem with modern day. Uh, filmmaking is if there's a problem, you throw some money at it and CGI it, CGI it. Whereas, you know, in in older films, you would find a practical way yeah. around the solution, and I think that is what filmmaking really is. And, so yeah, that's my, that's my answer. What? 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 One. Well, well, I just wanted to ask you some uh, quickly, Jake. You obviously you mentioned. Um, you know, trying to trying to get onto the screen. You know, certain certain things that characters do. Um, I was I was just intrigued. Um, because obviously everybody goes about this differently, whether they're writing a film or you know even with yeah. stuff like novelizations and stuff. How, how how do you actually go about um creating your characters? What what sort of your process? Um, well, I start off. Um, I usually start off with a concept or a story or an idea. Um. It's this thing called an outline where you it's a small paragraph where you can you basically get right put your idea down on paper. Uh, it's kind of like not as much, but it's kind of like a plot summary in some ways. Uh, although it's it's kind of not as well. It's it can be a basic idea, a basic premise. It could be even some people start with characters. I've never ever done that. For me, I like to have the stop. I like throwing characters in certain situations that would I wouldn't like to be in. Um, like getting an example, throwing um, someone who's allergic to bees into a beehive. Like that would never be a good film, but that's sort of the way I like to write about things. Like, well, how would that character respond? What would he do? Would he? How would he get out? That's how I approach something like that. Uh, that's that's a very good way to think about it. That that I think. You're definitely way better than me at uh, script writing and you know uh, creating a character that feels real but also interesting at the same time. Yeah, I think, I think that's a very good way to to, to look at it. Um, I'm intrigued as well because, like, on a film, what's the proudest moment you've ever had to shoot a film, short film, short video? Is there a moment that sticks out? Oh, you're just so happy about. I don't know. Well, I, I think, I think, uh, as much I'm never really an editing kind of person, and this is probably why I, I like it so much. But when when I'm uh, in post production and I'm editing something and I make a shot completely work that maybe wasn't as good when we were filming it, but I, I sort of fixed it in post production. Yeah. I always feel quite proud of myself and quite happy, and I think that's probably just because post production is one of my weaker points, but I don't know, there's, there's something like jigsawing a film together and it works and and it's just you get a satisfaction from it and I think that's probably been some of, some of my proudest moments when, you know, filmmaking. Yeah. Um, what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you when shooting a short film or video? 
Oh, it's it's when you when when you've got an idea and you want to make it, but uh, when 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 you get when it comes to shooting, you can never quite you know get there because either an actor's dropped out or you can't get a certain piece of equipment or a crew members dropped out or you can't get the set and when it, it's stalled for ages, that is the most frustrating yeah. thing. When you've got a really vivid idea and you can't quite, you know, make it, that's definitely the most annoying thing. Yeah. Um, I'm going to... Obviously, um, with the whole... We're in a, currently in a, like, you know, a global pandemic. Uh, we can't just be roaming about, you know, being on film sets, etc. What is... I mean, you've had to, I remember you telling me a few weeks ago, you had to shoot your last final, like, short film for college at, at home, didn't you? Yeah, well, we haven't done that yet. I'm not sure if uh, we, we still got to, but, yeah, that was the initial idea. How, how are you finding that? Because, like, that's, like, restrict. that's, like, limp, that's, like, shooting with restrictions to, like, 100. Well, I'm <laughs> It goes back to the, the point I made earlier where when you've got a problem, you've got to find a, a practical solution uh, around it. Even if that is kind of destroying what you originally wanted to make, you've still got a like, for example, the situation I'm in now, I've got to simplify things and make it so I can film it with fewer actors and fewer uh, sets and locations. And, uh, you know, as much as that takes a toll on what the, the final product looks like, if you've got a good idea and you know what you want to do, it will still be half decent, even with the restrictions that you have. Yeah. Jack, have you got any more questions? Um, no, no, I don't think so. Um, the um, the last thing I did want to talk about um, when we come to wrap up this episode is um, about Thursday's yeah. episode, because I'm really, really um, excited well, about that. We'll but, um, on the last like little thing with films or TV shows or whatever we've been, we've been watching the last like few weeks. Um, so we'll, we'll, I mean, I, I'll start. Um, over the last like few days, I've watched Rashomon keeping the Akira Kurosawa like film marathon going. Um, it's a murder basically from three different different perspectives, and then you need to kind of figure out who's lying, who's telling the truth. Um, it's so well framed, so well shot. Um, the screenplay is pitch perfect as well. There's not really much you can more say about a Kurosawa film that hasn't been said by film majors, film professors, and people who are a lot cleverer than me. <laughs> um, but if you haven't seen it, it's on BFI Player, and I think it's on Amazon Prime so um, in the UK, so I'd recommend checking that out. Um, another film I should watch, uh, which is a really weird one, it's called Redemption. Uh, it stars Jason Statham. And it's written and directed by Steve Knight, who you may know from Peaky Blinders. He's the show's creator. Um, it has some really, really good action sequences in it. Um, the story and the, there's like a love interest in the film that really don't really make much sense and they don't really work. Um, but there's some really, really good action sequences. And it's especially in this one in this alley, uh, which is really well shot and looks amazing. But apart from that, Jason Statham just beating up bad guys. Uh, it's it's good fun, but quite disposable. What about you, Jack? Um, I think we've um we've gone through a lot of the stuff that I did watch this week. I talked about it earlier. Obviously, um, I rewatched Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction this week, sort of in lead up to this. Um, 
Last night I also um, rewatched Harry when Harry met Sally because I found out yeah. it was on Netflix. <laughs> so um, I decided to rewatch that, and I I forgot how much yeah, I liked that film. Fun. And um, yeah, it's, it, yeah, it's really good. So um, that that's a, that's about it for for me. I haven't really done right, that much. Harris, what have you watched over the last week? Like, few weeks, months, last week, last day? I've uh, I've I've rewatched season four of Peaky Blinders, yeah. which. Uh, in my opinion, it is the best season, but not because I think the plot is weaker than it was in the earlier seasons, like season yeah. one and two. But I, I just love the, the you know the Italians coming to Birmingham while keeping realistic and keeping Peaky Blinders and keeping to the traditions of the show. Yeah. And you know the cinematography is good as yeah. always. And I think that the plot is still still good. And I, I don't know, it's just I, I I really enjoy it. It's kind of I think I think the reason Peaky Blinders is so good is because it's a new take on the yeah. gangster and I thought like the the new take like the being the Birmingham gangsters and the old take being you know Italian New York gangsters you know meeting it's kind of like a, a gangster crossover and uh, I think it's just brilliant. I good. mean I'm re- it's in the first season now I'm like three episodes in it's so well shot. Yeah, it's brilliantly shot. Um, so yeah, um, the cinematography, yeah, the cin- I think it's like the first season, I think it's probably its best written. Like, it's so I love like the part with um, the IRA and the guns, like, it's so it's quite linear, and I really like that as well. Yeah, yeah, um, so yeah, I agree with that. The first season, definitely, yeah, the, the first season is great. Um, I guess we'll move on to updates and we'll wrap up this episode. So, Jack, um, what was what have you got for us? Yeah. So, um, I've got here planned out our next um, three episodes, but th- this one I'm uh, I'm really looking forward to um, in particular. So, um, a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, a an Instagram page for a film called Liars and Cheats um, liked one of our posts, followed followed our page, and or whatever. And um, I, I decided to um, have a little bit of a uh, look into it. And the um, writer slash director is a um, is a man called Jacob Michkowski, and um, he that he actually has some um, awards and accolades to his name. He's previously um, worked at places like Paramount and Sony, and um, he is the founder of Interesting Picture Company, which is a, a film production company where he uh, writes and directs his own film. And um, recently, he was um, well. He won a um, a uh, final draft award for a screenplay called Freefall, and um, that's obviously um, quite a big deal. It's he um, went over to America and do it. I think he's based over here in England, and um, I think Tarantino was speaking there. And I think I think it was quite it was quite a big um, quite a big event. It was on the uh, Paramount lot. And um, I uh, DM'd their account on the off chance that we would get an interview with him, and he has agreed to come on an interview um, on Thursday. And I'm really, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, then on Sunday, the 24th, we um, have another guest on, Adam from uh, Movie Metropolis. There on Instagram page slash uh, Movie Blog. They have, um, they also have um, accolades to their name. They're a top 10 UK uh, movie blog and they have been nominated for um, the World uh, World Blogger Award, um, which is uh, quite cool. 
and um, Adam from there will be coming on talking about um, the Jurassic Park franchise on Sunday the 24th. And then we have um, two of our previous guests coming on the Thursday after on the 28th. Um, we'll have Daniel Horsley and George Horton back on to um, talk about the Star Wars sequels this time. So, um, again, that should be another fun, possibly slightly heated um, yeah. session. So that's our schedule for the uh, next um, little bit. There. So yeah, we've got we've got a lot of people. We've got a lot a few people coming on next few weeks. Um, we hope you enjoyed today's uh, episode. Thanks to Travis for coming on. Uh, he'll be on again. Uh, we'll get him yeah, on again thanks. if he agrees. Um, it wasn't too hard. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's yeah no problem. Uh, well, we'll see. We'll see you all Thursday for an interview. This interview, and um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for listening.